Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe and we have a Brain Awareness Week special. I spoke to Dr. Rachel Dunlop, also known as Dr. Rachie from the Skeptic Zone podcast. But first up, here's the news with Therese Chen. A long-standing problem has been the manufacturing of adhesives that remain effective even when wet. In a series of papers recently presented to the annual American Association for the Advancement of Science in Boston, scientists have turned to nature for a possible solution. Muscles are confronted with powerful waves on a regular basis. According to biologist Emily Carrington, waters reach the speed of up to 10 meters per second the equivalent to winds blowing at 965 kilometers per hour. To avoid being swept away, the muscles secrete a powerful adhesive, and it is this adhesive that the scientist, led by Herbert Waite, a biomaterials specialist, has spent over 30 years researching. So far, they have discovered that the protein fibers used to attach to a substrate contain a high presence of amino acids known as dihydroxyphenylalanine, or DOPA. Another team, led by Philip Messersmith, Professor of Biomedical Engineering at Northwestern University, has created a synthetic mimic named polyethylene glycol. Among other uses, his team has been researching its application in closing internal wounds during surgery. In particular, Messersmith has been investigating its effectiveness in the repair on fetal membranes, where surgery is performed on the fetus in utero and the sac is too thin for suturing to be possible. In a yet-to-be-published study, the glue was found to increase the survival rate of fetal rabbits. During his presentation at the AAAS, he also outlined the potential uses as a cancer drug delivery agent and as a self-settling antibacterial hydrogel. And now, our special interview for Brain Awareness Week. Dr. Rachel Dunlop is a medical researcher at the University of Technology, Sydney, with an interest in motor neuron diseases. On motor neuron diseases, you're looking particularly into a compound which is found in pond scum. Yeah, BMAA. Yeah, it is. I guess it is found in pond scum. It's found in, well, it's actually blue-green algae. And blue-green algae is cyanobacteria. Uh, and cyanobacteria is known to most people as blue-green algae because we see it 
in blooms in the ocean, but more commonly in rivers and lakes, and it tends to appear to be a green scum, which over time can become a brownie blue scum and become quite smelly. But it is cyanobacteria, which means it's bacteria that photosynthesizes, and it's around 3.5 billion years old. So it's one of the oldest known organisms to us. And so I guess it did probably come out of primordial scum, if you like. (laughs) (laughs) And blue-green algae. I've seen that marketed as a health food in spirulina and things like Mm. that as sort of food in a pill. Is that likely to have the nasty compounds? Well, the... It's, it's an organic compound. It, it makes a whole range of toxins. It makes hepatotoxins, which are liver toxins. Uh, it makes neurotoxins, which affect your neurons. Uh, it makes a whole range of things. So unless you're testing each batch of it before you put it in a bottle, there is a potential that it could have those toxins in it. Uh, so I guess it's up to you if you, you want to eat it as a food. <laughs> right. So it's no point anybody... Um regulating until they're, they're testing, until they're able to, to test for that sort of thing regularly? Well, there was, there, was some, so there was a bit of a stink about this a number of years ago in the US, and there was a company that grows blue-green algae under controlled conditions, and they claimed that they had tested theirs and it was clean. Uh, I haven't seen anything on this since, so I don't know what the situation is with the industry mm. now, but certainly, um, you know, like anything... Um, th- It can have toxins in it, so I don't know, unless... I I personally wouldn't take it unless I tested it myself. (laughs) So the mechanism that BMAA is thought to take with ALS and other neurodegenerative (laughs) diseases, I think I'm suffering myself. (laughs) So what action is it supposed to take in the brain? Yeah, it's really interesting because BMAA is actually uh, mimics an amino acid. So uh, people might know that amino acids are the building blocks of our proteins. Uh, So our body has usually around 20 different amino acids that it uses to make into our proteins. And we can make thousands and thousands of different types of proteins from those 20 amino acids. BMAA is known as a non-protein amino acid, which means it occurs in nature, but it's not normally used by our cells. But it turns out that it's very similar in structure to one of our own amino acids. So what we think is happening is it tricks our cells into thinking it's one of our own and our cells insert it into proteins when they're making proteins. But because it's not exactly the same, that can cause those proteins to not fold properly and then not function properly. And over a long period of time, if you are absorbing enough of this neurotoxin, BMAA, through whether that's the food chain or whether you're breathing it in through the air, whether you're consuming it through water, it can cause these proteins that don't fold to build up over a long period of time. And once they get to a particular threshold in the cell, the cell can't cope anymore and and it subsequently dies. And this is what we think may be causing the neuronal death that you see in diseases like ALS and other motor neuron diseases. Um, We've heard of folding diseases before. So is that similar in some ways to the prion diseases? Yeah, that's really interesting. There is some literature out there now that is pointing to a similar mechanism as the prion diseases for the eventual cell death that you see in neurodegeneration. So this can apply to things like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. These are commonly associated with what we call uh, protein misfolding disorders. That includes ALS. And 
there's a group in Melbourne actually that have done some fascinating research where they've able to been able to get proteins that don't fold properly. They've put them into cells and they've been able to show that they actually um, perpetuate their toxicity throughout other cells in a prion-like fashion. So we think that the prion mechanism may be what is actually causing the cascade of cell death that you see in something like ALS. For example, with ALS, the time to death from the time of diagnosis is an average of 27 months. It's a very short period of time. So we think there's a long lag time between exposure to whatever it is. And and I must emphasize that we don't know that BMA is the only, obviously it's not the only thing that can contribute to this disease. It's a multifactorial condition, like many things now. You know, we know that, um, for example, with Huntington's disease, there is a gene that causes that. But with many other neurodegenerative disorders, there's not one factor. Uh, But we do think that they all seem to be coming to this endpoint that's the same. And that is that we get rapid cell death over a relatively short period. And that looks to be a mechanism similar to the cascade or the chain reaction that you see in prion diseases. And for people who are new to it, what is ALS? ALS is amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. <laughs> and uh, it is a motor neuron disease. It's actually known as motor neuron disease in Australia, but it's technically one of a bunch of motor neuron diseases. And it is what Stephen Hawking has. So he has had ALS for a long period of time. It's also known as Lou Gehrig's disease in the States because Lou Gehrig was a famous baseball player and he had it in America. Um, So it goes by several names, but in Australia it's called motor neuron disease or MND. With the accumulation, is there any suggestion that there might be a risk from animals, meat animals that eat pond scum or that are fed algae as a deliberate food stock? Yeah, well... This is really interesting because the the way that this the involvement of this particular pro, this neurotoxin BMA was initially discovered was because there was a bunch of indigenous people who live on the island of Guam and they came down with a disorder known as ALS PDC so amyotrophic lateral sclerosis Parkinson's like complex <laughs> just we can just call it ALS PDC uh, and this was um, it happened after World War Two when American physicians went into Guam uh, and they noticed that these people had a Parkinson's-like neurodegenerative disorder and it was a very high percentage of the population, in fact a lot more than what, about a hundredfold more than what you'd see in the normal population. And once ethnobotanists went in, and one of those was um, Oliver Sacks, who has written a lot of books about his experiences and he actually wrote The Island of the Colourblind about his experiences on this island looking for the causes of this disease. Uh, they eventually discovered that the locals, the Chamorro people, have a voracious appetite for fruit bats. Um, they became a delicacy and there were periods of time when the uh, indigenous people didn't have any other source of food, but they loved the bats so much that they ended up putting one population of bats into extinction and another one onto the endangered species list but the way they would eat the bats would they would cook them in a coconut soup so in a coconut broth and they would boil it up and they'd eat everything including the skin and the wings and the broth now what was interesting about this is that those bats fed on the seeds of cycad trees and cycad trees are also very old species they were around when the dinosaurs were around uh, 65 million years ago but in the, the roots of these cycads grew this symbiotic algae 
this was cyanobacteria, blue-green algae. It turns out it grows in the soil as well. And it's a nitrogen-fixing compound. So it worked in symbiosis with the cycad trees. But what, what happened was that it turned out that the neurotoxin in those cycad seeds would actually bioconcentrate through the food chain. So it would grow in the roots. It would become absorbed by the tree. It would concentrate in the seed kernels of the cycad. And then the bats would eat the seeds. And then the chamorros would eat the bats. So when ethnobotanists looked at the diet of the chamorros and looked at the fruit bats, they discovered this high level of neurotoxin. And since then, we've discovered that it also bioaccumulates in seafood because algal blooms bloom in the oceans as well. They bloom in freshwater and saltwater. In fact, the largest ever ocean bloom was off the coast of Beijing just prior to the Beijing Olympics about two or three years ago. And Australia has the honour of having the largest ever freshwater algal bloom, which was in the Barwon-Murray Basin in 1991-92. So studies from my colleagues in Sweden have looked at um, levels of this neurotoxin BMAA in seafood. They found that it's in high levels in shark fin, high levels in prawns, particularly in mussels, because mussels filter up to seven to eight litres of water an hour so they're going to excrete the water, but any toxins they will retain in their flesh. Um, also crabs, some, some crabs that were found in Washington Bay also had very high levels. In fact, levels as high as what you would find in the bats on Guam. Ooh. Yeah. Um, and since then, we've done some, well, my colleagues have done some preliminary studies looking at dolphins. And this is really fascinating. This was in Florida. Dolphins were found disorientated in brackish water, Um, seeming to be in places they weren't supposed to be or they had died of unknown causes and when they did autopsies and looked at their brain tissue they found they had high levels of BMA in their brain. So it was thought that this might have been causing a neurological disorder that led to them becoming disorientated and it's also now been hypothesised that that might have something to do with whale speeching but that's a very very speculative (laughs) idea but We know through um, global warming and increased eutrophication, which is runoff from farms and runoff from industry into water bodies, that algal blooms are increasing in size and frequency. And so we need to be aware that this is going to be a problem and it's increasingly going to be a problem. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR 107.3, and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. BMAA can be in the air. We think so, yes. Uh, one of my colleagues in America, he's a neurologist, and he did this beautifully elegant study, which I'm so jealous of. I wish I'd thought of it. It's so clever. He tracked the addresses of his patients when they lived 10 or 15 years prior to their diagnosis because we know that there's a lag time with diagnosis of ALS um, of around 10 to 15 years 
we're not really sure, but we think it's around that. So he was able to track where they lived 10 or 15 years prior to their diagnosis on Google Maps. And once he'd done some epidemiology, he was able to uh, identify that those people had lived near water bodies that had been subject to frequent algal blooms. So over their period of their lives when they lived there, they were potentially breathing in the toxins from the algae. Now, this might sound a bit far-fetched, but we've also done some studies, and other people have too, looking particularly at uh, veterans from the Gulf War. And this stuff is so interesting, I think, because um, the largest American military base in the Middle East is in Qatar. Now, the soldiers that were deployed during the Persian Gulf War have a th- two to three times greater level of ALS than soldiers that even went to the war but weren't deployed. Air Force guys that were deployed in Qatar during the Persian Gulf War also have three times greater levels of ALS than those Air Force guys who went but weren't deployed. Now, the difference between the deployed soldiers or the deployed Air Force guys and the ones that weren't deployed is they are exposed to a lot of dust. So they're in the middle of the desert in the Middle East. They're walking behind trucks at night and to keep warm, they're next to the trucks. The trucks are churning up the desert crust and in that crust is around 56% cyanobacteria blue-green algae. So I just went to the desert a couple of weeks ago and we went out to one of these areas that we had previously sampled to measure levels of toxin in the desert crust. And um, my collaborator is a little bit of a nut and so what he's done, he's watering the desert. So he's got four plots in the middle of the desert and he's pouring water on them. And we did it and after about five or 10 minutes, you can see the crust of the desert starts to turn blue or green. So algae can go into hibernation for a really long period of time, but after five minutes, if they haven't had water for year, like months and months, they start to photosynthesize again. And in those parts of Qatar, the most rain they get every year is about 40 millimetres, which is a very, very small amount of rain. So there's this really elegant piece of study that's been done in that particularly in the Qatarian region and we've got such great controls we've got soldiers that were sent there but didn't go out to fight so they weren't breathing in this dust with the Air Force guys we think it's because they were cleaning out the filters of their um, aircraft and so the filters were trapping all the dust and all the toxin the other thing that's interesting is because these people are not used to desert life they weren't necessarily wearing a face cover so a lot of people that, that live and work in Qatar cover their faces, cover their mouths. When I was there recently, I saw a lot of guys working on the side of the road and they all had their faces covered and their mouths covered. So they're not going to be breathing in as much stuff. So that's a really nice study to be able to demonstrate that there is a possibility, and in science you can never say it's true, as you know, that there's possibly a mechanism for it being breathed in as well which is really scary. (laughs) That is really scary, and (laughs) it's one of the things the soldiers probably didn't anticipate was a danger. No, and in fact, the the Department of Veterans Affairs in the US has spent millions of dollars looking into the reasons why the um, veterans that came back from the Gulf War have increased levels of ALS, and that's one of the things that we've been looking at. So, yeah, it's, it's... it's, it's a hazard of war that you wouldn't necessarily expect to have to deal with, I guess, but yeah. Especially with such a long lead time for diagnosis. I mean, that shows that just how long the Gulf Wars have been going so long that we can now detect ALS. Well, the interesting thing about the Gulf War was it was um, very short. I think it was nine months 
Operation Desert Storm. They went in. Schwartz cough. He went in. He was gone in nine months, pretty much. But almost exactly 10 years later, we started to see this increase in ALS in soldiers from that war. So we have a 10-year gap or lag time between when they were exposed and when they... And of course, when they got back to the States, they all moved to different places. So there's no reason to think that where they're living in America has had any impact. And that's also what's interesting about the people from Guam. Um, People that even moved into Guam, lived there for a few years, then moved out again, still had higher levels of ALS. So there was definitely something on Guam that was triggering their ALS and the same thing for the Persian Gulf. Wow, that that's really amazing stuff. Yeah. Supposing it is proved, what does that suggest for prevention or treatment? I guess you have to do Cox postulate here, don't you? You have to feed some sort of model, BMAA, and if you can induce that disease, then you can demonstrate that that was the cause. It's a little bit more complicated than that, you know, in science. In this case, because it's not specifically an infectious agent, like a prion, for example, which was how Kuru was proven in the 60s, you know, eat this person's brain and you get it. We think there's a a lot of factors involved that have to come together for it to happen. So the thing about this hypothesis is it's actually quite controversial because, for a couple of reasons, BMA is very hard to detect because it's generally at very low levels and it needs very high specialised equipment and techniques and skills to detect it. So there is a bunch of people in uh, the research community who don't believe it causes problems because they don't believe it's there. And then there has been studies done with animal models looking at if you feed it to animals, do they get motor neuron disease? And they have come up negative. So a couple of times the hypothesis has been thrown out. Then We've seen all these studies with um, soldiers. We've seen Alzheimer's patients in North America who have uh, increased levels in their brains, ALS patients in America who have increased levels in their brains. So if it gets to a point where we're reasonably confident that there is definitely a link between BMAA and motor neuron disease, it has a lot of implications for public health. So first of all, we'd have to start testing for it in our water because we currently have a lot of... Um, mechanisms in place to test for things like microcystins, giardias, um, saxotoxins, other toxins that are produced by algae in our drinking water and recreational water, but we don't test for BMAA because it's very difficult to to detect it. In fact, we send our samples to America to get analysed because we can't even do them here. It's too high end. Um, With respect to treatment, Um, We are currently running clinical trials in America, which started in January this year, and we're using a compound called serine. Now, serine is a standard normal amino acid that everyone has in their body. You can buy it in the health food shop, but we think that that is the amino acid that BMAA is knocking out of the proteins. So in structure, serine and BMAA are very similar. So we think that if you have BMAA in your system, it's actually getting misincorporated by accident into your proteins. So the theory is if you sort of overflow, overload people with serine, it'll flush it out. So we've only just started doing phase one of those trials in America. Um, they're basically safety trials. So we've got about 40 patients. We're feeding them serine to see if they can tolerate it. And then from there, we'll move on to whether it actually works. Yeah, so that, that's where we're going to go with this work. 
And how long do those sort of trials normally take? Well, with this one, I think it's a three to six month trial, the safety trial. It was very rapid approval by the FDA to use this particular drug because it's an amino acid. And it's really curious, actually, because I do a lot of work in, in alternative medicine and in complementary medicine. And when I say a lot of work, I mean, I critique it quite a bit. <laughs> And people say to me, oh, you can't use natural therapies in clinical trials and stuff like that because you can't patent them. Well, we have patented this. We've patented the application of it. So it's not true that you can't patent natural substances. You can't necessarily patent the structure, but you can patent the application. So the thing that's quite unique about our trials is that they're costing a very small amount of money. And from discovery to clinical trials has taken us about 18 months. If you compare that model to Big Pharma, for example, you'd be talking about a lot of time before you even get to phase one trials, whereas we've gone in really quickly, and the aim is that this is a disease that kills people in 27 months from time of diagnosis. We don't have time to mess around. So we want to get something out there. The other thing about ALS is it's known as an orphan disease because not that many people have it. About one in 100,000 people suffer from ALS. So big pharmaceutical companies aren't interested in developing a drug. Also, because it's not a chronic disease, it's pretty acute. So they're not going to get resale value on a drug that they develop because people are dead in 27 months. There's currently only one drug out there that extends people's lives by roughly three to four months. So we need to get something and we need to get it fast. So we've bypassed all of the going through the big pharma um, way because that'll just take too long. So we're hoping to have results from the phase one trial this year. And then I guess depending on what happens with that, we move into phase two and see where we go. Sounds terrific. Yeah. Well, Dr. Rachel Dunlop, thank you very much. Thanks, Ian. That was Dr. Rachel Dunlop medical researcher with an interest in motor neuron diseases from the University of Technology, Sydney, looking into the causes of ALS. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. If you'd like to contribute to the show, we need more volunteers. You can send your contributions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com Contributing to the program was Therese Chen. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Ha, <laughs> ha,